0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 11th, 2011. I apologize, but today will be our light version for the week. Don't want to have to explain the reasonings behind that. Trust me, they're good. Well, maybe they're not. No, they are. <laughs> I had to think about it. Yeah, they're, nope, they're good reasons. And it has nothing to do with the snow. Ah, loving the snow. We got a ton of it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And uh, we try to provide a good counterbalance in, in in biblical critique discernment, as well as positively teaching what the scriptures teach, and so the idea here is is that um, we are of the firm opinion that many of the things being said out there in the name of Christianity, well, well, they're not Christianity. So, unfortunately, we've got to say, let's take what that guy says and compare it to this passage to see if there's uh, if it's squaring, and many times it, it just doesn't square. That other times, what we try to do is we try to provide a well a positive teaching. You know, it's not enough just to sit there and go, "That ain't right." Yeah, no, no, you got to say, "Well, he, not only is that ain't right, but here's what the Bible says." And so we try to do some positive teaching at the at the same time. And our our light versions at once a week, normally on Fridays. Well, I can't even say that. Many times, often, you know, frequently, no, um, from time to time, it ends up on Friday. <laughs> Yeah, I got to be honest, you know, and I just I move it around depending on my schedule, because uh, my research schedule, my reading schedule, uh, all the other things that I've got to do in a day. Um, production and other stuff, and and uh, anyway, sometimes that can kind of get in the way. And as a result of it, I I need one day a week when I'm capable of uh, of saying, okay, I I'm not going to be doing a full program. There's a it, it takes a lot of prep time to do a program, by the way, and uh, and sometimes I just don't have uh, the ability to get it all in, and uh, and so what the the light version does every week is it gives me a, a little bit of fudge room. And uh, I invoke it, uh, it, number one, it's an important part of what we do here, but number two, I invoke it as a means of taking some of the pressure off of me. I don't know if you knew that, but that's the the reality of it. So what we're going to do today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to play uh, sections 9 and 10, uh, episodes, well, uh, lessons 9 and 10 on the two natures in Christ. This is uh Dr. Rosenblatt's college level walkthrough on Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ. If you don't have a copy of this book, you really ought to. it ought to be in your library. go to fightingforthefaith.com. on the sidebar you'll see a link there that you can click to that'll take you to amazon.com and you can either get a Kindle version and uh, which I yeah I really recommend that I i I'm becoming a fan of uh, of the of the ebooks <laughs> well. And some of you are going really? Yeah, I, just trust me. It's it's it. You get it instantly. You can start reading it immediately. And while well, it reads, just like a book. And you think I don't have a Kindle? Yeah, if you have a smartphone or a, a laptop, you know Amazon has just done a stellar job of making these works available. And you can highlight and note and annotate, which is kind of important to me. I'm like a, a highlighting fanatic. If you ever look at my books, oh good night. I'm high. I, I go through highlighters like some people go through underwear. You probably didn't need to hear that, did you? Okay, well, you did. All right, so let's. <laughs> I'm punchy. I, <laughs> I, just... yeah. I, uh, I think I need to get get a little bit more sleep. Thankfully, my wife is coming home <laughs> tomorrow. So, anyway. Um, uh... Oh, man. Without any further ado, here is Dr. Rosenblatt, lesson number nine on the two natures in Christ. And uh, and uh, when when he's done with this lecture, we'll take a break, pay a couple of bills, and then go right into week number 10 or lesson number 10. So uh, here we go. Here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, uh, week number nine, the two natures in Christ.
1: Okay, overall, what we're going to look at today, <clears throat> we are not yet to where the the real marbles are, but... Chemnitz covers this one as well. Umbrella. We know from the scriptures that God gives good gifts to believers. All he's going to do in great detail here is to say, in that same way, to his son, he gives these only in superabundant amount. Okay? That's the basic thesis of today. There's a relationship between God giving gifts to Christian believers and that also his son, to him he gave these only in larger degree. What we will do next, and it'll take about four installments, is where the marbles are. And it has to do with that the deity of Christ is manifested through his body, yet without a confusion of nature's. Again, sometimes you learn a position by saying, what is he most afraid of? Chemnitz is most afraid of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. He is most fighting that position that says Jesus is true God and he's truly man, but they're in watertight compartments. That's what he's up against in the whole book to say, look, There is one Christ, one person, and with both natures, he redeems us. But he's not Sybil. He's not a multi-personality. He is not schizoid of personality. So sometimes you learn best what somebody is trying to defend by saying, what's he most afraid of? He's most afraid of a schizoid messiah, a dual personality messiah. Um, So, for what it's worth. All right, let's look at a few of the details here. In the Confession of Chalcedon, the ancients recognized more than the first genus. It teaches that both natures in Christ perform with one another what is proper to each of them. And then he gives some of the background to this. It's not enough that the rescuer would be true God. It's not enough that the rescuer would be true man. Um, But it's at least necessary that he would be both. Then he deals with some definitional issues. You can do that on your own. And he links it, middle of the page. This is pertinent when we deal with the effects, duties, works, merits, or blessings which Christ bestows as Savior. This is typical of the Lutherans. We're not interested in metaphysical discussions about atoms. He is going for the jugular here and saying, if I read scripture correctly, the mediator is going to have to be fully God and fully man, or we won't have a mediator. And we'll still be in our sin and we'll face justice at the end. And none of us can face justice. So he's linking this to the person and work of Christ. Uh, Then he says that also, um, when one nature is involved in something, the other nature is not completely untouched. Uh, Literally, he says, the other nature is not supine or doing nothing, But rather, that which is the property of the one nature takes place and is performed in communion with Christ's other nature. This is why he wants to keep saying, talk about the one person. Don't talk about natures or limit that. Uh, Talk about the person who is composed of the both natures. All right, and then he gives an example. I quoted the whole thing at the bottom of that first page. The divine nature is present in the human suffering, nailing, uh, crown of thorns, bleeding. Don't imagine that the divine nature is sort of like the Greeks walled off. Don't do that. Uh, We might not have a whole bunch of passages that give us the details of that, But he says, if there's a hypostatic union, don't talk like that. Now, what's his fear there? Well, the classic heresy was called patropassionism, um, that the father suffers. And I'm not going to go into that. But um, that's what he's saying. Don't do this like the Greeks. Evidently, um, the father... (coughs) Is more involved in the death of the sun than the Greeks would ever have guessed, and then he stops he 's not divided from it. okay The devil would be in the details there okay, next page consider the difference between predications concerning the essential attributes of the individual natures and those we make concerning the Duties, merits, and blessings of Christ the mediator. He grants that the individual natures in Christ have their own natural essential properties. He said, everybody grants this. It's not an issue. Um, But, B, predications about the qualities attributed to the entire person are something entirely different. When we speak of the work and benefits of Christ. Now, here he has in mind the cross, The work and benefits of Christ, primarily his work as our priest and his death in our behalf and for our sin. Um, And we must say there are certain things among these works which Christ's divine nature cannot accomplish without the assumed human nature. Now, here he's going to go in the direction. I'm going to give it the best possible turn I can. Not Greek philosophy, but passages that has has to do with God is eternal, and God is unchanging. Malachi three six, and James, um, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's neither shift nor shadow of turning. You say, "Gee, that sounds Greekish." Well, yeah, things can be related, but he's not drawing from Greek thought here. He's drawing from passages. Now that assumes that the Bible is different from all other human books, and I'm not going to digress on that. But that is defensible: that this is the Bible is sui generis, or in a class of one. Uh, That old Appalachian grandmother was right when she said that the Bible was God's word, and her liberal Methodist minister was wrong. She was right. This is God's word. So you can have things that are similar to what you find in Greek philosophy... ...but not drawn from the same well. He's drawing from uh, the scriptures that I mentioned here. Okay, three. If redemption, propitiation, liberation from sin, the devil, death, and the wrath of God... ...and eternal malediction or damnation... ...could have been accomplished either through the deity alone or through the humanity alone the Logos would have descended from heaven and become incarnate in vain. Does that ring a bell with any biblical section you can think of? Yes, 1 Corinthians 15, absolutely our faith would be in vain. The one I was thinking of was Galatians. That is, if the death of Christ was not enough, but you need to add into it Moses and obedience, then Christ is of no profit to you or died in vain. It's literally from Galatians. Um, So it's not again as if he's doing this, you know, in the abstract. There there are passages that undergird this, uh, broad as it is. Um, The saving works of the Messiah could not have been carried out in only one nature. So the passage is first, and then if you're looking for something in the ancient church, two authors come to mind just like that. Athanasius on the Incarnation, which is wonderful. I'm going to bring it to you and pass it around, show and tell. It's Just a half inch thick. So simple reading. Athanasius on the Incarnation. And the other one is a later work by St. Anselm, 11th century um, Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Latin title is Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man? And there he argues, from the passages, um, that if there is to be a rescuing Messiah, he's going to have to be both divine and human, or he won't qualify. That's the book in the history of the church on why the rescuer had to be both. Um, Some of the scriptures that he looks to here. In order that we might be freed from the curse of the law and receive adoption, God sent his son made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4. Uh, Romans 8, God sent his son in the morphe of sinful flesh that sin might be condemned in the flesh and that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Or Jeremiah 23, God raised up for David a righteous branch, whose name is Yahweh, that the Messiah might be our righteousness. John 3.17, God sent his only begotten son into the world, that the world might be saved. Okay? The the passage on... Uh, destroying a strong fortress uh, and a stronger one was necessary uh, to do this. That's from the Gospels um, and Hebrews two fourteen. It had to be done somehow through death. That's the whole sacrificial system coming to an edge that uh, pointed to the, the forgiveness of sin was going to require the death of the sacrifice. It was not just direct, but it was going to be linked with blood um, necessarily linked with blood, the greatest lesson of Leviticus is not just about lambs. The greatest lesson of Leviticus is someday I'm going to provide a sacrifice that's a real one. Uh, it's it's to get the Israelite to not just look at the lamb for Passover. But to look ahead and believe that there was really going to be a lamb, God didn't need the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but to get him to look ahead for who is this promised real one. Evidently, God's going to provide one that really works. Okay? Because it was also necessary not only to die, but also through death to destroy the power of death and to restore us to life, 2 Timothy 1 which was the proper activity of him in whom there was life in the beginning, John 1. Therefore, Christ had to become a participant in flesh and blood in order that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Again, Hebrews 2. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, if I'd have been there in the audience, I probably would have whispered to the guy next to me, what's he talking about? What is he getting at? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, okay. The one who reconciled us not only died for us, but we're saved from his wrath by his life. Romans 5. Now, that he adds that, but doesn't do a long uh, section on it. We are saved by the death of Christ in our place and... By his having lived the life the law requires and that being credited to us as if we lived it. What dogmaticians call the active obedience of Christ. You might have heard the little, it's not completely wrong, the little thing about justification as being just as if I've never sinned. It's not that it's wrong, it just isn't complete. It's correct as far as it goes. But in the New Testament, Jesus saves us by being the true lamb, going to the slaughter without sound or objection. But also, says Paul, by living the life that the law requires of us and living it for us, and it's credited to us like that, when we give up on virtue toward God and say, Jesus is all I got. The cross is all I got. Other than that, I'm bankrupt. Says Paul, his life is credited to us as if we actually lived it. That means that at the judgment, not only will you not be condemned on the basis of somebody else's having died for you and satisfied justice, wonderful as that is, it's even more. That is, he will look upon you as if, You had lived a life required by the law, which none of us has by a long shot. But part of the imputation, the imputed righteousness, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hmm? I think of that section in his young life back in Nazareth when he stood up and said, which of you can accuse me of sin? And I think maybe of my high school reunion, if I got to the microphone and said something like that, you'd have to have one of those little things like the butcher has where everybody could take a number. If I looked out and said, which of you can accuse me of sin? Every hand in the room would go up. Um, So Paul says we're saved by his his death and by his life. You will never be accused of not having lived up to a given commandment. Why? Because Christ did. And then you have that imputed to you as if you lived it. Just like that. This is reckoned. This is not progressive. This is like that. Reckoned to you. As if righteous. With somebody else's. Conclusion. The mediator between God, the offended party, and the human race, the offending party, had to be joined to both parties. Quote, Thus, between the deity, the offended party, and the human race, the offending party, there would be no mediator, neither the deity alone nor the humanity alone, for it was necessary that the mediator be joined to both parties. This is straight Anselm. He has to be able to reach to us, that is, Hebrews, in every way as we, yet without sin, and in a way that we cannot, as Adam's children, reach to the offended party, the father, and be able to do both those. That's Anselm, and he was. Thus, with a marvelous combination, the hypostatic union of the two natures and the person of Christ took place in such a way that there is a mediator of the divine humanity and the human deity, as Augustine said. Okay? Then he notes... How, in Christ's miracles, we find that each nature in the incarnate Christ operated in communion with the other, not in isolation from it. Jesus used tangible or bodily word for cleansings and resurrections of the dead. In each of these, though Chemnitz admits, like with the centurion's daughter, he could have just spoken it, and it would be, Huh? Go, your daughter will live. I haven't seen like faith like this in all of Israel. Go, your daughter will live. Chemnitz admits in all cases he could have done that, but he didn't. And he says there's more than one reason that he healed by touch or with spit and mud, um, uh, or put his fingers into the ears and touched the tongue of a deaf, dumb man, or took the girl by the hand and raised her from the dead, um, before he raises Lazarus, he calls to him with a bodily voice. He said, "One of the reasons, I think, that he did this was, again, for our sakes, so that we would not look down on his humanity. Give me an example of looking down on his humanity. Well, it's Plato. huh? That is. The real, 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 real you is your inner spirit. And then you happen to be linked with a body, in my case, one that's falling apart. Um, But the Greeks said, uh, and the reason that uh, Socrates was not afraid to drink the hemlock We're sort of demigods, and there's this pure thing inside of us just yearning to be let free from the body and fly back to Mount Olympus, you know, because it's so good. Biblical thought has nothing to do with that. It's at war with it, absolutely at war with it. So Chemnitz says, In this, he is teaching us in manifold ways not to look down on his humanity as if it's just sort of baggage. Or to put it another way, the old Lutherans put it, in becoming incarnate, taking everything of our flesh to himself, the second person of the Godhead blessed all of human activity. Before I give this lecture out on campus, I'll say to my students, we're going to talk about sex. I'm hoping that that gets some students to show up for lecture. <laughs> but the old Lutheran said, he hallows our work, vocation. He hallows marriage. He hallows the flesh. He hallows... All of the humdrum of what we do week by week, he hallows errands, which I find hard to believe. But all of human activity is blessed in him taking to himself a human nature. Now, he solves our basic problem, which is spiritual. We've rebelled against our Creator, but it's not just that, he hallows human activity. If you think about that in terms of the eschaton, there's not just going to be a new heavens. There's going to be a new earth. Mm -hmm. Or another way of putting it is get used to having a body. You're going to have one forever. Now, the new one will be as if you exercised, in my case. (laughs) But, or to, to use Lewis, God likes matter. He invented it. And nobody got that the way the old Lutherans did. Huh? We sort of mean it when we talk about the great marriage feast of the Lamb. We're thinking actual wine you know, and actual food taken into actual bodies. So Chemnitz is against spiritualizing us or God. Rather, if the old Lutherans are right... God has hallowed our bodies falling apart as they are and our activities by taking to himself our flesh. When Luther got pushed, he was only interested in talking about the God who suckled at Mary's breast. That was the only God he was interested in, in whom he was interested uh, at, at Marburg when they were fighting out the Lord's Supper, he and Zwingli, Zwingli got totally frustrated. He said, Luther, what God do you believe in? And Luther said, the only God in whom I believe is the one who suckled at Mary's breast. Um, We are just, we like iron filings to a magnet, finding out about God is watching Christ and listening. Hmm? John, We think it's John chapter 1. You haven't been there? That's where I come from. You're ignorant of it? I know about it. You're in sin? I come from where there isn't. You know, John chapter 1. So if somebody says, you're doing something really strange, we'll say, not according to the text. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this is sort of how it looks globally and in detail. You find out about God through the Son. Find out the, about the Father through the Son. Okay? Every other theology starts at the beginning and goes to the end. Lutheran theology starts in the middle and then does this. And if we never get to a chart with regard to eschatology, we don't really care.
2: <laughs>
1: you know? And then we work backwards to the Father. Um, it's like a rock thrown into a lake whereas everybody else starts at the start and goes to the end. Um, We start with the incarnate one. All right. We're not always able, in the case of Christ's works, to picture or demonstrate before our eyes the way in which one nature performs its communion with the other, that which is proper to it, yet because of the hypostatic union, we do not doubt that it occurs. Uh, He uses the words of the ancient here and ancients and says, this is how they talked. Um, But he rests the thing on what he's done before with regard to the hypostatic union. Um, And then he closes that section with the comfort we receive from these facts. Our faith has the surest comfort from the fact... um, Whoops... The work of our redemption is not the work of a mere man. Uh, sin would be greater if that were the case. But by his own blood, God has redeemed the church. Scriptural or no? The quote from Acts. Odd way to talk. God with blood. Eh? Um. The person of the Redeemer accomplishes the work of redemption according to each nature, so the work of redemption is the work of the person, not only the humanity, also the deity. Then five, we must therefore not think that the divine nature was entirely inactive in the work of our redemption, or that the person performed the redemption in the human nature only. Um, and then some of the scriptures that he uses here. Uh, and the charge against it. But you said before that suffering and death are properties which do not apply to the divine but only to the human nature. Christ suffered and died in the flesh. First for Peter and his response I give to you on the last page. Chemnitz. It's one thing to speak of the suffering and death of Christ insofar as it's a property of the human nature. It's another thing that through this suffering and death, the wrath of God is placated, the head of the serpent is crushed, death has been destroyed, life has been restored, and the captives have been liberated. For these are all activities of the divine power, yet they are not accomplished apart from his flesh. Furthermore, we must bear in mind that the hypostatic union is pertinent to a consideration of this kind of communication Because this union is so intimate that the one nature acts in communion with the other, not only in producing and accomplishing the effects of Christ's work, again it's cross, but also in that when the one nature in Christ does that which is proper to it, or when Christ performs according to the one nature that which is proper to that nature, then also in the action or the suffering which is proper to this nature, the other nature is not inactive. It does not do nothing. Or do something else. But at that very time, the one nature performs in communion with the other that which is proper to it. For example, suffering and dying are proper to the human nature. Yet, because of the hypostatic union, while the humanity suffers, the divine nature in Christ is not idle, but is present in the personal union with the suffering nature, willing that it should suffer. Now passages should come to mind here willing that it should suffer, permitting it to die, yet strengthening and sustaining it so that it can bear the burden and emerge victorious uh, and its sufferings be made saving. Um, what passages come to mind? Um, that the humanity, uh, while the humanity suffers, the divine nature in Christ also is not idle. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, I'll give you an example on the other side. Somebody who characterizes Christianity as the mean God in heaven looking over the parapets and saying, I want blood. I'm going to find somebody who satisfies my wrath against the race. There's Jesus. He's a nice kid. I'll kill him. Everybody reacts against that, and they should. They should. But the corrective to it's in Scripture. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Um, The whole thing involves the love of God in the sense that he's going to mete out his wrath and justice on himself so that we never face it. Somehow within the Trinity, we are let off free. But he pays great cost always been amazing to me once you straighten out that bad picture that people still reject the gospel or oppose it because the one who took their sin is the one who says your complaint is what I took care of your whole problem and I wasn't beholden to do it you didn't even care if I did but I did it anyway and and what exactly is your complaint God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Or you think of the gospel accounts, and the angels came and ministered to him. That was Gethsemane. His, uh, his uh, travail was so great that uh, the blood issued like sweat. Um, the one who was crying out somehow within the Trinity, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That sort of thing, and and the promise that he would be strengthened for his task. Again, Chemnitz is not doing this like a Greek. He's doing it from passages, doing it from verses. Okay, let me throw it open uh, for questions. When we come to the next section on the third genus, that's, as I said, where all the marbles are, and we'll do do detailed work together on that, then we will be at page 400 and some Out of a total of 475 pages. Then we're going to do what amount to appendices. But in the next couple of times, uh, we'll be at the one where he really thinks it's central, that the deity showed itself forth through the human nature. Um, And he knows he's up against a whole bunch of critics there, so he does it in
2: great detail. Okay, let me throw it open for questions. Art? Uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, uh, right near the beginning, uh, under Chalcedon, etc., cetera, uh, you have a quote by Chemnitz, but the very teaching that the mediator had to be not only God, nor only man, but at the same time, both God and man should convince us that this is an erroneous idea. Now, it does Am I having trouble with that uh, because it's, I don't understand it? or
1: I, I couldn't put everything in there. Yeah. He said some have tried to say there's only one genus. Yeah. And he's going to answer that. Ah. that. Those are the sum. Mm-hmm. It's my,
2: my sloppy work. Another question from Uh You speak of the old Lutherans. Uh, I always consider myself to be an old
3: Lutheran. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But who do you have in mind? I mean the 16th, 17th century guys. That would include Chemnitz himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, those who were sort of like Lewis said of himself in his inaugural lec- lecture at Oxford, in which he referred to himself as the last dinosaur, he said there aren't many of us left, uh, what we're called is old western man, and there aren't a lot of us left, uh, Most had been transformed into modern men. Lewis didn't think that he had and really didn't want to be. But he recommended that graduate students follow them around and take notes on them because they were almost extinct. Um, In the same sort of way, um, somebody like me is perceived in broader Lutheranism as hopelessly stuck in a prior century. And answering questions that just aren't the modern questions. Uh, I think the old Lutherans speak better to the modern questions than the modern Lutherans, but not in the same way. Uh, to the modern Lutheran, sin and salvation isn't the question. Existential authentication and such are the question. We're we're in different worlds. We're just in different worlds. Um, Lewis calls this divide the great divide. He places it in the 19th century. I think it's probably in the 18th, um, in which he says, The whole West, at a particular point in time, shifted from the mental furniture being biblical to the mental furniture having nothing to do with Scripture at all. Think of Thomas Hobbes in his, uh, his uh, political writing, The Leviathan. If, uh, Hobbes was an atheist. When he wrote The Leviathan, it reads almost like the King James Bible. Why? Because he wanted to communicate. And if he didn't put it, into biblical imagery, nobody would have understood what he was talking about. In our day, it's the flip, according to Lewis. He said, I'm a converted pagan living in a country filled with apostate Puritans. So he said, I have to take Christianity and translate it into the language of moderns or they won't even understand what it is enough to be offended by it. We're on that side of the great divide. Um, In prior centuries, that would not have been the case. People would have said, of course, if you were using David or Abraham to illustrate, of course. Because the machinery was biblical, the mental furniture. But we're nowhere near that now. It's looked at as kind of antiquarian, strange somebody like me is looked at as hopelessly
2: pre-modern. Would the great divide uh, represent the uh, age of enlightenment? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Also, another question. Malachi, you mentioned, is there a particular verse there? 3-6. 3-6, thank you. Yeah. Behold, uh, O Israel,
1: I do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed.
3: Just to piggyback on, you know, some of what you've said. I mean, I think that my, my impression has been that inside every one of us today, every every contemporary Christian, there's a Gnostic screaming to get out. You know, and it's, it comes out. Dr. Horton at, agrees. Well, it, it, it comes out in, in the way we talk about death and dying. It comes out in the way that we talk about uh, eschatology. You know, the, uh, it, it frustrates me yeah. no end to talk. Memorial services, as opposed to funerals, oh yeah, to uh, or celebration. Yeah, we're celebrating the release, and we're celebrating their life instead of no. Let's mourn. There's a dead body right here in front Absolutely. of us, and that's not the way God intended it to be.
1: Absolutely, um, I found out that in the biblical passage from Paul, I thought that grieve was an imperative. It's not grieve, but not as those who have no hope. It isn't an imperative in the Greek. I thought it was. But the Bible is filled with what you're describing, absolutely filled with it. Um, and there's a way in which to not grieve is to disobey biblical writ. Not only are we free to do it, the Bible recommends it. Huh? And the part that the Gnostic really doesn't like is when the pastor's up there in the fr- front talking about, and he will say to the seed, give up your dead, and it will. And he will say to the graves, open, and they will obey, and they will give up their dead, and he will raise them bodily. And the Gnostic hates it, just hates it.
3: Well, And I, I think he also hates the, the bit, as you mentioned earlier, about the, the new earth. Oh, yeah. And the fact that, you know, eyes, yeah. and, and this is exactly the way God created us to be. And, yeah. And yeah. darn it, we're going we're gonna to be that way. Yeah.
1: We've got to overcome all that nonsense in the children's books about angels and trampolines and harps and dither. Uh, you know, no, 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 no. It's, it's Matthew. You know, and some of the graves were opened and they were alive and walking around. Whoa.
3: And you know, just I'll give up the mic here in a second here, but you know the the way that I read Christ talking about it and St. Paul talking about it, and everyone, it's this age and the age to come. Absolutely, here we are on earth, and there we are in heaven. It's this age, age to come.
1: Yep. And the age to come began at the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Christ, and continues today. But that trumpet will blow, and the graves will open. Get used to having a body. Hmm. And tell the Gnostics to go jump in the lake. We are not spirits. We're human beings who will die and be raised if Jesus doesn't return first and will be raised not as a gas but as a body. Huh? Yeah. 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 Okay, next week we go to the jugular. Not, not just in one session. It'll take more than one session. But uh, next week we'll do that and we'll uh, divide it into pieces because it's the core of the book. Uh, after that, it's just a matter of appendices or particular issues. Um, so I thank you for your attention. Hope it's of value to you. And I will plan on seeing you next week. And uh, we'll tackle the jugular of this whole book, 500 pages of it.
0: Thanks. Good stuff. Okay, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay a couple bills, and when we come back, we're going to continue with the next lecture on the two natures in Christ, so you don't want to miss that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash christian. or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate christian. We... Well, we'll be right back.
2: God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: more of your money in your pocket hi Chris Roseboro here if you're planning to travel anytime in the near future then don't pay more for airfare hotel rooms or rental cars than you need to Longtime pirate Christian radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs plus Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional ten dollars off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Your church ain't giving you the goods, sound biblical doctrine, Christ in Him crucified for your sins. Well, you're missing out, and this program will actually aggravate that problem and make you fully aware of the deficiencies of what's going on and what what people may erroneously be calling a church. I need to remind you all fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts your financial contributions to continue bringing this program to you as well as to the world if you don't already partner with us financially uh, well I please change that do so the way you do it is by visiting our website fightingforthefaith.com when you get there you'll see two friendly yellow buttons one says donate the other says join our crew When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're going to continue with uh, lecture number 10, week number 10 on the uh, Two Natures in Christ. Here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt.
1: All right, uh, you should have two separate pass-outs today. That isn't that we're necessarily going to get through them. There's a plus side to this, and there's a minus side. The plus side is that much of it's review, so I'm not going to retrace in detail what we've done. Now, Chemnitz does that, Uh, I think, that he's doing it as pedagogue. That is, one time I got a call from Rick Ritchie who was working on the Lord's Supper for his master's thesis back at Gordon-Conwell in in the Boston area. He was studying at Harvard and at uh, Gordon-Conwell, and he was frustrated with Chemnitz because he repeated himself. And I said, I know exactly what you mean, but when you're done, ask yourself whether he got it in or whether he didn't. So I think it's pedagogical technique. Um, The old thing about uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Chemnitz, I think, is doing some of that. uh, Lest we hit it just once and never get back to it, he cycles it back through. So that will enable us to go more quickly through material rather than retrace in detail what we've done. On the other side of it is, we're now in the area where all the marbles are. So if ever there was a time in this whole four and a half hundred page book not to treat something lightly, these are the chapters. These two and the two you'll get next time. So let's see what we can accomplish without uh, either retracing prior material or going very light on stuff that really he considers central to his whole book. Fair enough? All right. 21. The point on which there is disagreement centers on the important point of the majesty of Christ, the third genus. And this is where the argument really goes hot and heavy. Says Chemnitz, we won't be able to fish out all the depths of the mystery, We'll have to be content with partial knowledge, but we should take what is sure from Scripture and true from Scripture um, and on other things defer till that later heavenly school. The simple, sure, firm, and immovable foundation we rightly can and must attribute to Christ with respect to or according to his assumed human nature those things which Scripture attributes to him. Now, this is his way of saying, I think, this case stands or falls with passages. And he's going to say that the critics are doing it not primarily from paying attention to the passages, but we're going to. Okay? The third point is um, review. Gifts of which we were speaking in the last chapter in no way equal or fully describe the excellence, preeminence, and majesty of all those things which Scripture teaches. They're true, but there's more than we covered in the last chapter. Scripture teaches not only that Christ received created finite gifts, but the very characteristics or attributes of the divine nature of the Logos himself. That's where the fight is that in the human nature, again, to use the metaphor he chooses, if you think of fire heating iron, the iron gets so that it glows red hot, but it isn't becoming fire, never did, never will. But the iron itself manifests that it's being heated by fire by beginning to itself glow with heat. Two prior points. First, those things which Scripture predicates is given to Christ according to his human nature in this highest category, the third genus, are not created gifts, but are attributes which belong to the deity itself. He's going to try and prove that from Scripture passages. Second, those things are given to Christ not according to the divine, but according to the assumed human nature. Quote, When we have established these two points, the explanation of the rest of the matter will be simple. So, scriptures which speak to this point. Christ is said in scripture to have been given all power. Not just in the Great Commission, but he lists several others too. Only God has all power. A life-giving life was given to Christ. He had the ability to give life to the dead, both senses. The power of performing judgment was given by the Father to the Son. Only God inherently has the right to judge the race. He was glorified, John 17, the high priestly prayer, with the glory he had with the Father from all eternity. The very blood of Christ, says scripture, is able to cleanse and destroy sin. You'll remember the conversation I had with my Westmont student uh, who said you can't get spiritual benefits from material elements. Um, and I said, you agree with me on this? And she answered, no, what you, you're saying sounds Roman Catholic. I said, "If you bet all of your chips, the blue ones, On particular blood shed on a particular cross out of a particular Jewish body one particular afternoon? And she said, Yes. I said, Then you're on my side. You believe you got spiritual benefits from material elements. And again, the guy way back in the back said, Yeah, he was a universal donor. And finally, again, Colossians 2.9, in Christ dwells the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily. So, says Chemnitz, Scripture passages force us to say that as a result of the hypostatic union with the Logos, not only created or finite qualities, but also attributes which are proper to the divine nature have been given to the human nature. To his flesh. And then the summary, you can read the summary on your own, and a closing section on how the scholastics object. And then he says at the very last as soon as we mention this communicating, a clamor goes up that we've made a commingling, conversion, or equating of the natures in Christ. So, first we shall remove this offense. That's the next chapter. He said, as soon as I talk like this, everybody says you're confusing the nature. So he said, I'll devote a chapter to it on this one, on uh, the, the genus of majesty. Again, keep in mind what he most feared. What Chemnitz most feared was the her- heresy of Nestorianism, where you didn't have one Christ but two, not, one, not two persons or not one person but two. Uh, that's your background. What is he, what's his foil for what he's saying? And as everybody realized at the time up ahead, you're going to talk about what the supper is or isn't. All right, next one, chapter 22. Anytime a commingling conversion or equation either of the nature of or the essential attributes of each nature in Christ is advocated, the Orthodox Church must condemn it. And he said, we do. We do. Let's look closely to see if the accusation is true. Our accuser's position, he lays out, and we reply. Scripture itself, which in no way teaches such a commingling, tells us that the vivifying life and the power of executing judgment were given to Christ, the Son of Man. And again, since Scripture itself predicates that these attributes have been united with the Logos, it is surely manifest that we cannot conclude from this a commingling of the natures has been created if we understand it in a scriptural manner he charges his accusers with a fundamental logical mistake. Quote, if it does not take place in the way we say, it cannot take place at all. And he's going to claim that a careful reading of the scriptures, we will find that Christ's flesh gives life, that he has been given all power of judgment, in fact, all power in heaven and on earth, as son of man. The avoidance of a commingling. The substantial difference of the natures must not be abolished or confused. That's straight creedal Christianity. And we confess this communication is neither essential nor natural. That is, the divinity doesn't become the humanity, and the humanity doesn't become the divinity. The attributes peculiar to the deity are not communicated to the human nature in such a way that it possesses them essentially. That is, that they're transferred, or they become a part of the essence of the other nature. He said, that's what this argument's about, and we don't say that. The result would be uh, that the natures in the person of Christ would no longer be distinct and separate. He grants it. We condemn such opinions. We also reject the equation of the two natures. Sum, summing up. We boldly confess there is no communication of either the essence or the natures within the person of Christ. We retain the rule that the property of the one nature in Christ never becomes the property of the other nature. Then he surveys the heresies. Now, I'll do this lightly because you can do some of the detail work on your own. He starts out with the Nestorian and the Eutychian heresies. And he picked the right ones. The Nestorian heresy is basically Jesus was true God, true man, and they're in watertight compartments. And the Eutychian heresy was like a chemical reaction. Um, You can't go backwards once it occurs. Um, The chemical reaction occurs and you have something new, but none of what you started with in the same way. And the charge in the Eutychian heresy was, My gosh, you guys are saying he's neither really God nor really man anymore. He's some third substance. And they pressed, if that's true, we don't have a savior. He's got to be truly God, and they'd quote all the scriptures, and he's got to be truly our representative, our brother, and truly man, or there's no such thing as an atonement. It's got to be both. The Eutychians had gotten rid of that. By the way, that's what you'll be charged with being uh, if you're a Lutheran. The principal points in the refutation of these ideas from Scripture. In Scripture, God is called not just the Father, but also the God of Christ. The idea of greater and lesser is here, but not like we think. This is going to look like he's going after the deity of Christ. He's not at all, but listen carefully. Christ, therefore, is lesser or inferior to the Father in glory, not, however, according to his deity, but according to his humanity. And I think that what he's working out here is Galatians. That is, he took our place. It was necessary if we were to be saved, that he went underneath the law to save those who were condemned by the law. That was his choice. He put himself beneath the father, beneath the law, in order to save. In Scripture, the husband is the head of the wife but the head of every man is Christ. He wasn't just head of all the angels. God is the head of Christ. However, according to his deity, the Father is not the head of Christ. Christ is equal with God. Paul thus shows that the human nature in Christ has been exalted above all creatures, but is below or lower than God, as Luther so wisely teaches from this passage in Paul. That's Philippians 2. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, here Paul shows that the human nature in Christ is below or less than or inferior to God, not only in his state of humiliation, remember your catechism here. The Father is greater than I, John fourteen, twenty-eight, or was it only after the resurrection I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, John 20, But even after the last day, when he will have handed over the kingdom to God uh, and the Father, Paul, when all things have been made subject to the Son, then the Son himself would be subjected to him who has subjected all things to himself. Conclusion. In our churches, we in no way teach, allow, or approve a communication of the majesty which produces, brings, introduces, or establishes a commingling, conversion, or equating of the natures or essential attributes in Christ. Now that you'll want to take a look at at your leisure, um, complete with the passages. And I think it's that unexplained mystery we find in Scripture that Jesus talks about to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you not see that it was necessary that the Son of Man be turned over to sinners, crucified, die, and rise again the third day in order that forgiveness of sins would be preached to all nations? That mysterious must within the Trinity, that it was necessary that? And it's in multiple passages, but we're not given the explanation as to how the gears Go And if we don't know that, we just have to say, yes, sir, and salute. Uh, but it's in that communication that he had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It was necessary that the Son of Man be delivered into the hands of sinners, die and rise again the third day. It was nece- or think of Gethsemane. The second person of the Trinity cries out to the first person of the Trinity, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Was there another way? Evidently not. If there be any other way, this has vast ramifications for who do Christians think they are in saying that Jesus is necessary. Well, if you happen to find somebody who at least will read the scriptures as a classicist would read the scriptures, that is respect the text more than his interpretive agility, uh, they might even grant that. Gee, nobody's ever pointed me to that before. But this has nothing to do with his essential non-equality with the Father. He's talking about what was necessary in order to save us, and he's using Scripture to do it. On the other hand, we also reject those men who are contending that the majesty of which we have just now been discussing, is in no way given or communicated to the, the assumed human nature. That's the more common evangelical position, and it's closer to Nestorian. Such men, says Chemnitz, are, not striving, are striving not to grant Christ's full majesty to him, but rather to deprive him of it. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to sum up his, these last four things, and then I'll open it up to questions. Here, I'm not going to do the, the details, but just a little. First, some maintain that the attributes do not pertain to the assumed human nature at all, but only to the person. This amounts to saying that these are given to Christ as man only verbally, but it doesn't describe how things really are within Christ. It's strictly verbal he doesn't have much respect for this the compelling reasons for rejecting the position scripture when it speaks about those things which have been given to christ in time mentions not only the person in general but christ according to his assumed nature it specifically mentions his flesh and his blood john 5:27 Uh, He gave him life and the authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Chemnitz, thus his flesh is life-giving and his blood cleanses our consciences from all sin. And he adds, all the Orthodox writers of the past with one voice and one confession understood it this way. That's in addition to scripture. By the way, it's the way the earliest writers of Christianity wrote. We're on that side. Second, some others say characteristics given to Christ in time were given to his divine nature, but not for the first time. That is, he had these from all eternity, and somehow he dumped them in becoming incarnate, but they're re-given or re-issued to him by the Father. Um, Scriptures which refute it, those you can do on your own, especially he, he... goes to John 5.27, uh, which mentions his flesh and his blood, and because he's son of man. Then Ephesians 1.4 and Hebrews 2, the passages are there. Uh, These things are attributed to Christ according to his human nature. That's why those are worth checking. The entire ancient Orthodox Church understood that a bestowal was not made on the divine, but on the assumed human nature. He never was without his divine nature. Um, the old Lutheran said that he would restrain himself from using it as he saw fit. But there are enough times that it flashed out empirically in miracle that we're not just flying blind here. Uh, I suppose the major passages that are in in mind there are the ones in which somebody skeptical demanded that he do something as a magician would do it. Or on the cross. If you're the Christ, come down from the cross. Then we'll believe. Um, And Jesus has short shrift for those who, during his ministry, would demand him to do a trick. Um, There are a couple of passages that you want to be careful not to concatenate. Um, One passage in Mark and one in Matthew. The one says, And he did no mighty work in that town because of their unbelief. In the other gospel, you have a reading that says, and he could do no mighty work there, and he marveled at their unbelief. Those are two different sentences. The thing you don't want to do is to take the one half of the one verse and plug it with half of the other verse. And he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. There's no verse that says that. Okay. Worth noting the distinction. Okay? We do not have the power to stop him from doing anything. He can decide to and did sometimes. But we, we don't checkmate his moves ever. Okay, Um, so he disagrees with this and believes that the ancients are on his side. Uh, The humiliation was not the absence, deprivation, loss, lack, despoilation, setting aside or laying down of the divine attributes. If you want to really impress your friends and confound your enemies, use the phrase "canonic Christology, transliterated from the Greek, K-E-N-O-T-I-C. It comes from the Greek word kenosis, and it's Philippians 2. And he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant. If there's one Bible verse the old Protestant liberals used like fundamentalists, it's that verse. So Jesus had emptied himself of his deity in becoming incarnate. He was in the same situation as we, in a way that Scripture doesn't say. Now, the problem here was that the liberals had had to face really good arguments that Christ, in his ministry, always deferred to the Old Testament text as if it were true. In everything, he didn't make the distinction between theological things and non-theological things. In fact, he quotes from some of the books that are most offensive to us. Genesis, Jonah, ouch. And he quotes them as if those things actually happened and were true. So the liberals, realizing how often the evangelicals were able to quote how Christ used and believed or what he believed regarding the Old Testament text, and he was a ranting, raving fundamentalist about it, so they shifted the grounds and said Jesus was just a product of his era. You can't expect him to know any more than anybody else. So they were first willing to put all of Scripture into the fire, but showing their true colors, if necessary to defend that, you put the whole person of Christ into the fire as well. Canonic theories with regard to Christ. Um, And the Orthodox had to tackle those and decimated the position. Just absolutely decimated it. Uh, I suppose the best place you could go would be Lightfoot's commentary on Philippians. Just decimates it. Everybody knows Lightfoot's commentary on Philippians and respects it. Same thing you find with something by F.F. Bruce. I mean, when even the liberals respect it, you know that somebody did careful homework well, Lightfoot did on Philippians, and it's that famous passage in Philippians 2. Huh? Maybe we should actually hear that. This, this is one of the major ones in, uh, in Christology. Probably Paul is quoting a hymn that already was being used in worship. Um, let's see. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, eternally, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, hmm, equality with God, a thing to be gripped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, paragraph. And understood in an orthodox way is just wonderful. But it was one of the ones glommed onto by old Protestant liberals saying, I'll bet we can use this in our cause. And they attempted to. The so-called canonic Christology. A Jesus who's in the same boat as you and I are, captive to the culture and knows no more than anybody else did. It's that kind of attitude, where somebody says, "Well, of course Jesus thought Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He didn't have the advantage I had in in studying under Professor Herr Glotzpunkt at Heidelberg." <laughs> and you want to say, "Where do I start with this? Where do I begin?" Huh? And if you and if you believe that he erred terribly, and they did terribly in things earthly, what in the world causes you to bet your chips on things that you can't verify or can't see? As Jesus said, if you do not believe if I tell you things earthly, how shall you believe if I tell you things heavenly? If somebody can demonstrate to me that the four Gospels are historically as full of holes as Swiss cheese... I'm not going to trust Jesus on what I can't verify directly. If any book claims to be revelatory, I'm sorry, but it's going to have to show itself somehow to be revelatory. In other words, it's going to have to be tested. Now there, thank God we don't have the Reformed here who would hyperventilate that Scripture is autopistic or self-attesting. Some of our guys wrote that too. There's a lot of that in Pieper Volume 1. Scripture is not self-attesting except after you've shown it to be what it is in other ways, fulfilled prophecy, miracle, and other things. Then you can talk about some sort of last step into confirming by it being a little on the side of self-attesting but it's such a quicksand that I don't recommend it. The best defense for the authority of Scripture is what Jesus believed about the Old Testament, and it's in verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. verse. And if somebody says, yeah, but what about the New Testament, then you're going to go to what he promised to particular people in the conversation in John 14 through 16. That is, he puts his a stamp of approval on a yet-to-be-written New Testament. He promises to certain people only a gift of supernatural recall. When the one that I promise to you comes, he will bring to your remembrance everything whatsoever I've said unto you, and he will lead and guide you into all truth. Those are not universal promises their promises to particular people, he knew what was going to happen. They did not have a clue. I would have said if I'd been in the back of the room, what was that he just said? What was that? But it didn't matter that they didn't know. He knew what was going to come. And before his ascension, places his stamp of approval on yet-to-be-written books. That's why, though there were more than one criteria for something going into the canon, the main one was, does it come from apostolic circles? Because it was to those he spoke those promises. Okay? The best case for the Bible is Jesus' treatment of the Old Testament and his promises concerning the New. Okay? not that scripture is somehow autopistic or self-validating. All right. So, uh, oh, interesting, he brings up, in the deepest depths of his humiliation, during the week of the Passion, Jesus said, all things which the Father has are mine, even in the depth of his humiliation. Death was coming. Also, in that same period, de- depth of the humiliation, John thirteen three, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and he gave the Son life and the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then he uses Colossians 2, 9 again, page 4. And what that means and doesn't mean, top of page four. Um, Third, some interpret all those things which we read are granted to Christ in time as habitual gifts or finite and created qualities. Here he says, just go back to the last chapter. That's what we were arguing there. Fourth, there are some who tried to escape this by sophistry to escape rather than to explain the doctrine. Quote, They assert that these gifts about which Scripture speaks were given neither to the divine nor to the human nature in time, but only to the person. Answer, but the person is the two natures. That's what makes up the person of Christ. And finally, some contemporary contenders, which whom he says he's not going to spend a lot of time on. They must have been... Very late in the game, but you can at least find it here, uh, summed up. Then the closing. Up to this point, by clear, good, solid, and sure arguments, we've tried to remove the dangerous, corrupt, and false teaching from both sides of this subject of the communication of the majesty. Now it will be easier, more expeditious, and more correct to turn to the true mode of this communication. And that's what we're going to do next time we meet. Um, to do this in detail, not as against errors, but again, as what we're talking about and drawing it from the text of Scripture. Um, All of you, I'm sure, see that this is background to the supper. That is, that this cup grants forgiveness of sin, drunken faith. This loaf grants forgiveness of sin, bread, taken in faith, and that this is not some weird ball addition to an otherwise view throughout the New Testament, but flows direct from a Christology built on many, many passages. It's not weird. Your friends will see it as weird, but it's not. Um, okay, let
2: me stop there and throw it open for questions. Dale? Uh, when we say that the human nature took on attributes of the divine nature, we're not saying, or correct me if I'm Man- wrong,
1: manifested them.
2: That, that the human nature took on every attribute of the divine nature, nor are we saying that it took on every attribute of the divine nature in the same way that, the divi- that, correct. that God has it. So, for example, uh, the human nature might have taken on, oh, let's, I, I'm just making this up. Uh, omnipotence. Okay. Right? But it wouldn't necessarily follow that other, other attributes, say omniscience or omnipresence, were taken by the, the human nature. The old Lutherans
1: tried to defend that.
2: Um, uh, now, to, Grant, try to, to defend which? Um, omnipotence. That uh, the, the Christ took omnipotence, but not necessarily other attributes like omniscience or omnipresence.
1: Uh, when, or you got, when you talk about omnipresence, Luther said, "Christ actually is in every green leaf, but he's not willed for you to find him there. You're to find him in the gospel, the supper, baptism. It isn't that he isn't there, but that's not where you look for him."
2: Now, I, I understand. I understand that that that, that they would say, that Luther would say Christ is there. Is he saying Christ as a human is omnipresent? Yeah,
3: this that's, came up That's at,
2: the thing. I'm, I'm, this
3: came
1: up at Marburg. And there's a famous quote. I'll reproduce it for you next time. When he looked at uh, Zwingli and he said, you can talk about a Christ who's split like that. No God like that for me. And, of course, Zwingli pressed. And he said, the only only God in whom I believe is the one who suckled at Mary's breast. Uh, On omniscience, some of the old Lutherans would say, if you look at the passages he talks almost as if he is. Now, there are particular places where he says he's limited it. In the same way he doesn't use his power, he doesn't call on his omniscient knowledge. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, but the Father only, neither not even the Son. There's one where he specifically says, I've decided not to know this. Or, uh, what's the other one? There, there are a couple of them where he specifically says, not the son, only the father.
2: Now, is that is that a case where he's saying that the human nature... I See, this is what I'm I'm trying to understand. I don't know. I don't want to slice it
1: finer than I know. Um, but I think on some of these passages with regard to omniscience, we'll find that Chemnitz does use them, uh, deal
2: a little with them in the last part of the book. Because you're going to have... I mean, it looks almost like kenosis, which I, I you know, the, if you say... That somehow the divine nature gives up those those things, yeah, th- right? That wasn't
1: our language. So if didn't Christ still upon. has the divine our nature, he didn't he's,
2: call upon. He didn't call upon those things, yeah. Dave, um, the, I, I keep thinking of the Hebrews' uh, description of Christ being the high priest and knowing all things that we. No, and have experienced all things that we've experienced. How would you tie this in with what well, we're discussing right now? Well, I wouldn't link right it now? to what Dale was asking.
1: But the important part is that except for sin, he was made our brother in all ways like us. And boy, those are the passages they reached for to say that whatever else the Messiah is, he's got to be human. He's got to be human. When, when Anselm writes *Cordeus Homo, it's passages like those in Hebrews that he calls upon. If he wasn't fully human, um, I am not sure of the forgiveness of my sin. You, you think of the earliest thing that almost drove the gospel off the earth, and it was Gnosticism. They had no problem whatever with Jesus' deity. Whatever you brought up, they'd say, Amen! Then, when you started about t- talking about verses that he was conceived, born, placenta and all, um, hungered, thirsted, got weary, felt compassion for the crowds, all those things. There the Gnostics said, "Well, we think we can explain those um, that is, it was going to be away from what they looked like they were saying, they didn't like that doctrine of the true human nature of Christ because spirit is superior to matter. Plato trumps everything. And it almost did the gospel in. I try to get that across to my students. It's hard for us to imagine when the deity of Christ is always on the line in our culture. To imagine yourself in an utterly opposite position where the humanity of Christ is being denied and unless it's answered the gospel's going to be gone it's hard for us to imagine hard for me to imagine a different fight but if you read the earliest history of the church that's where the fight was they
2: that's grant what, everything on his deal. that's why i brought that up because it's uh, with all due respect to the philosophers in the room i i my eyes start to glaze over yep i uh, think thinking about the divine nature and trying to relate it to the, but I can easily go to the human nature and think, my God, I need to have someone who can relate to me in the depth of everything yep. that I've experienced, but also save me. Yep. That's where I can go to the divine yep. is someone outside of myself. That's divine.
1: Yep. But and I, you're, you're in line there that that's not original. And what I'm saying is an original. We're in line with a whole 500 lineage of Lutheran thinkers in saying that. That isn't radical in our tradition at all. In fact, it's a necessary aspect, or we won't have our sin forgiven. Because it's not at all obvious, if, you, if we were there and shooting pictures of Christ on the cross, it's not at all obvious what is going on. It looks like every, any other crucifixion. In other words, if you decide that's where you're going to test it, good luck. But that isn't where Scripture directs us. It directs us to the empty tomb, which verifies what he said about what he was doing on the cross. Designated Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.3. Um, that's where you look, and it works backwards. Okay. All right. Um, I'll bring you at least one chapter next time, maybe two even if we don't cover them, but we're right at the guts and core of it here in these. And then the last chapters in Chemnitz, we're within about seven of being done. The last ones have to do with supper, denials of through the canonic theory, things that that aren't central to his case, but he knows he's got to before he stops writing, (coughs) comment on those. Okay, thanks for your attention.
0: All right, there you have it. These are just fantastic lectures. And uh, this is an example of what I call meaningful Christianity, Christianity, meaningful teaching, an in-depth study on the natures of Christ. Uh, Compare this to, you know, are you taking the proper steps necessary in order to get your finances in shape? (laughs) Uh, Meaningless. I, uh, I don't need a crucified Savior for that but I need a crucified Savior who is human in order for my sins to be forgiven, whose shed blood on the cross propitiates the wrath of God, and whose perfect sinless righteousness is imputed to me as if I am the one who lived it. That's worth studying. That's worth getting up for on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any day of the week, to hear and to open up the Word and to dig in in-depth. This is meaningful Christianity, not meaningless. And I appreciate all of the emails that I've been getting from y'all that have really benefited from and been challenged by this series that we've been playing from Dr. Rosenblatt on the two natures in Christ. This is good stuff. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio you're not already supporting us uh, what you waiting for (laughs) hey you know this is a partnership i'm doing my part have you are, are you yeah you get it go visit our website pick one of the friendly yellow buttons click it and fill it out you know what to do yeah i talk about it so many times this is not a secret so uh, if you if you don't already support us financially, please, please, please do so. We could truly use your support. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins, amen.